0: What's up, guys? Max here with another episode of the Scuttlebutt Show. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Yesterday was crazy. That was a that was a good show. Thanks for uh, being with me and listening to that story. And we got some people in the chat who were part of that whole uh, event with the Bullet One Zero uh, story that we were telling yesterday. So thank you guys for being here for that one. We have some crazy stories today. We've got talking about Audi Murphy and the anniversary of his Medal of Honor. We've got uh, the Navy. Patenting UFOs, which is crazy. We're gonna follow up on some stuff from yesterday. We've got a new unmanned boat that the Marine Corps is testing out. That's gonna go like some Robocop stuff out there and go patrol the oceans and be equipped with ordnance and everything. We've got a um, we got a story about the Navy band. We've got Army regulation changes. We've got Af- stuff out of Afghanistan. We have a crazy story. A lot to cover. But first of all, first of all, we gotta talk about. Yesterday. So about yesterday, we did that Navy band covers, Taylor Swift, sea shanty, which was a lot of fun. And in that episode uh, or in that segment, Justin in the chat said, have you seen the Lion King one? And I was like, oh, I have not seen the Lion King one. He goes, you you know, check out the Lion King one. It'll be worth your time. I go to tune into the Lion King one. I go Google Navy band Lion King. And uh, what I found just shook me to my core. So, very first thing we're going to do today, hope you guys are ready for some music. We're going to check out, um, we're going to do a little segment, Navy Veteran Reacts to Navy Band Covering the Lion King. So, let me switch over here and let me uh, bring up the Lion King video, and I hope you guys are ready because we're about to get down. We're about to get down with some Lion King. So, this is the Navy Band Covering Circle of Life. That's what we're about to listen to. As always subscribe, share the video. Link's down below about how you can support the channel, donations, Patreon, whatever you want to do. I just appreciate you being here right now. One of the best ways you can support the channel is just inviting people to come watch the video. So without further ado, here is the Lion King Circle of Life by the Navy Band. Let's do this.
1: What?
0: That's every Filipino in the Navy, by
1: the way.
0: So good. Their OIC is like, this is not very good. Get the counseling shits ready. I'm just like totally blown away by this. It's so good. Better than the original. Look at this dude, killing it.
1: Night. And the spirit of life All right,
0: hold on. So that was... So that was the Circle of Life. Uh, that's what we. Th- there's like another song playing now. So that was the Circle of Life. That's what we, that's what we came here to see. So I'm going to leave it at that. Unless you guys tell me to keep playing it, you guys let me know. But I'm going to leave it at that because we came here to talk about the Circle of Life. That's what we saw. That was incredible. That was in- unbelievable. Did you guys notice, by the way, um, we were talking about the Navy band yesterday. Did you notice the, the orchestrator was a captain in the Navy in 06? I didn't see anybody who was below an E6. Most of those people, men and women out there, were chiefs. There was uh, not a single junior enlisted out there. We were talking about how great the musicians have it in the Navy. They really do. They really freaking do. The MUs, the musicians have a good gig. Okay, so everybody in the chat. Kilo, I know that must have been confusing for you guys to jump into the chat right now. Scotty, welcome to the show. Uh, but they are, that was insanely good. They're so talented. The Navy band is so... They can quit playing Navy songs. They should just tour and cover songs like that. Like that's so much better than American Idol. If it, like the Amer- they do the American Idol tour where they go out and they cover songs, Navy band's so much better. They should just do that. I would go, if you would go to a concert and watch the Navy band cover songs and just like that, popular songs like the Taylor Swift song, like this video, subscribe. And then uh, I'll send the Navy band a notice that we're, we're getting them out to, to get on tour in Japan. How about that? All right. So we do have stories. We do have normal stories today, okay? I just had to, I don't know, I had to share that because it was so good. I only watched the, the bin, yeah, that part in the beginning, and I was like, we're watching this. We're definitely watching this. Okay, so uh, we've got a crazy story. Um, This is a follow-up. This is a continuation of something we've been covering a lot lately, which is about regulations, about hair regulations, nail regulations, clothing regulations, females, males, different races, and how how do regulations affect them? All right, so big news. Huge news drops by the army today. I watched an interview with the sergeant major of the army this morning in preparation for this. Uh, we got good news and we got bad news. So here we go. Out of the army, and this is just on the—they're piggybacking off the air force. You know how they, we love to do our piggybacking. They're piggybacking off the air force on their regulation changes. So here we go. Army ponytails and lipstick sweeping changes to army grooming standards are coming. This is from ArmyTimes.com. So. Soldiers of all genders will be allowed to have highlights that blend with uniform colors. That means in their hair highlights in the hair are now okay. Women can wear long ponytails during training or even shave their heads. So the reason that this is a big change is because women used to have a minimum hair length. Women had a minimum hair length. Men never did. But interestingly, with men, it was always like, even though there was never a there was never a minimum hair length, there was a funny regulation for men, and, and the Navy still has it, I believe, and I, we'll see if the Army addresses this, where if a certain amount of your hair fell out naturally because you went bald, you would have to shave your head. So you couldn't maintain, like, a patch of hair. Your hair couldn't be patchy. It had to be either, you know, a nice-looking balding pattern, or you had to shave your head bald. So- they're giving some leeway for women now, no minimum hair length. Men can wear clear nail polish. I didn't know, I didn't know if that was a big complaint. I didn't know not being able to wear clear nail nail polish was a big complaint. And terminology that some may find offensive, such as Mohawk, Fu Manchu, and dreadlocks will be removed from army regulations. I guess that's cool. But you know, if somebody said, why is, I guess, Native American Mohawk. But you know, Mohawk, Fu Manchu, and dreadlocks are like at least I I know what those are. You know what I mean? Like if you say that, I know exactly what you're talking about. What are those words going to be replaced with? What are they going to replace Mohawk? I've never thought of that as even a, I'm only right now just guessing that that's a Native American term that can be found offensive. I never even considered, I never even considered that Mohawk meant anything other than spiky hair down the center. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Fu Manchu, yeah, you know, I I guess that that can go. And dreadlocks, I didn't know that that was insensitive either, but hey, cool. You know, I'm always down with progressive stuff like that. Those changes and more are slated to come into effect February 26th. Army officials said Tuesday, given the service time to create imagery and memorandums. So there's going to be a crazy amount of people in Army walking around with uh, clear nail polish. I'm waiting to see all the Instagram posts and TikToks about clear nail polish. The changes are the work of a 17-soldier panel established to promote diversity and inclusion, according to the uh, Army Service. Suggestions were proposed by troops and voted on by panel members who came from commands across the force. The panel was made up of 10 black women, four white women, one Hispanic woman, one Hispanic man, and one black man. Revised hair and grooming regulations, because obviously, for those wondering, this is in response to the complaint that many of the hair and grooming regulations don't take into account sensitivities by uh non white people on how that those affect their body. Uh especially a lot of uh African American women where using like chemical straightener and things like that. So uh good to go. So some people don't like change, but that's how the world is, said Sergeant Major to Army Michael Grinston during a call with the reporters. It changes over time and we need to change with it. I'm not going to go into who voted and who said what, but this panel represented one force from all walks of life and we brought in experts like dermatologists and psychologists. So that's good. They uh they they had some experts with some technical expertise come in and address these issues. So they made these changes. Uh, you know, ju- So in the chat here, uh, Justin said, I thought females could always shave their head in the Navy. No, I think that there's a, there was always a minimum hair length. Unless you had some kind of medical reason, there was always a minimum hair length for females. Like your hair couldn't go, couldn't be uh, uh, shaved bald. You couldn't shave your head bald. Uh, Kilo says, that patch is four ID. It's four platoon leaders going north. Scotty said, "Did you just say the the nice looking balding pattern?" I guess I did. I guess I did say nice looking balding pattern. Uh, but you know, a natural looking balding pattern, not a patchy. You guys know what I mean. You guys know what I mean. Rachel, what's up? Welcome to the chat. So I did see in response to Justin here that clear nail polish is a form of PPE. Apparently, clear nail polish can protect your nails from chemicals which can damage your nails and good nail health is a sign of overall health, is another interesting fact. A lot of health problems will show themselves in the form of weird fingernail issues. So if your fingernails are looking weird, looking a little funky, make sure you get them checked out by a doctor. Earl, round of applause. Thank you very much for uh, whatever you're applauding there. So I'm on board with these changes. I didn't know that there was a big thing about uh, changing the 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 nail clear the fingernail polish thing. There's also rules about highlights, so men and women can get highlights in their hair as long as they're complementary to the uniform and the natural hair, co- hair color. And additionally, one other thing I didn't see mentioned there is that you can you can uh, dye your hair if you're a female. You can dye your hair any natural color, not just a natural color for you. So if you're Asian, you can dye your hair blonde now because blonde is a natural hair color, but not a natural hair color for Asians. So you can dye your hair blonde if you're Asian, anything like that. So people in the army are probably about to get weird with their grooming regulations. And I guess that that's uh, going to be interesting. And I'm always down with that. I like to, I'd like to see people express themselves you know, a little bit. Like I said in an earlier episode, if it's not making the military any less lethal, And it's making people happier. I don't see why you wouldn't do it. So Justin says jokes. I'm good to know. And knowing is half the battle. That's it. You know what I always said, Justin. I always said knowing. You know from GI Joe, knowing is half the battle, but the other half is unspeakable acts of violence, and we need to address that too. So half the battle is knowing, but the other half is uh, unthinkable, and most people should never have to know about the other half. All right, so. We do have a lot of stuff to get through today. We're already 15 minutes into the show. We do have another video coming up. So if you guys like videos, you're lucky because we have another one today. It's going to be pretty interesting. Maybe somebody in the chat can help explain uh, the next video that we're going to watch. But the next story is not a video. The next story is from military.com, and it is amid Biden-ordered review of Afghanistan troop drawdown report finds Al-Qaeda gaining strength. I'm not surprised to hear this. We talked about this, frankly, yesterday. The Biden administration's review of the Afghanistan withdrawal strategy under new Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been complicated by a Treasury Department report that al-Qaeda has been gaining strength and raising money through continuing close ties to the Taliban. So a resurgence of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. By the way, if you don't remember, bin Laden was al-Qaeda, and we went to go hunt al-Qaeda in Afghanistan originally, and when al-Qaeda was defeated, the enemy became the Taliban as a kind of general statement of what happened over there. So Al-Qaeda is gaining strength in Afghanistan while continuing to operate with the Taliban under the Taliban's protection, according to the January 4th Treasury report. And that went to the Defense Department's inspector general. Al-Qaeda also has parlayed cooperation with the Taliban to raise money through donations from like-minded supporters and from individuals who believe that their money is supporting humanitarian or charitable causes. Now, I feel like that's a weird wording for that. Like, I wish they would say other terrorism empathizers, you know, sympathizers, because the Taliban is not doing anything too great over there. And Al-Qaeda is certainly not an organization you want to find yourself involved with. At least the Taliban claim on the surface to be a political organization who just want control of Afghanistan. Not They're bad. They're definitely bad, but they want political control of Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda is a terrorist organization. So I wonder who's supporting them financially. I wonder where they're getting their donations from. Because if you remember, Al-Qaeda took a lot of money from state sponsors like Saudi Arabia, as well as wealthy individual donors who supported their attack on America. So this is definitely a scary thing. The fact that Al-Qaeda is raising money and growing in strength in Afghanistan, which was which did lay the ground for them to be able to commit the attacks on nine eleven. Al-Qaeda capitalized on its relationship with the Taliban through a network of mentors and advisors who were embedded with the Taliban, providing advice, guidance, and financial support. So it says here, the Treasury report backs up October statements in a webinar by Edmund Fitton Brown, the British head of the United Nations, and analytical support and sanctions monitoring team for Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and the Taliban. So wait a second. Backs up October statements in a webinar A webinar by Edmund Fitton Brown, the British head of the United Nations analytical support and sanctions monitoring team for Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the Taliban. United Nations analytical support and sanctions monitoring team. I'd like to know more about that. Fitton Brown appeared to suggest that the U.S. was underestimating Al-Qaeda's resilience and the continuing threat posed by its fighters to the peace process. He said senior Al-Qaeda leaders remain in Afghanistan as well as hundreds of armed operatives, according to a Voice of America report on the webinar. Now, Interestingly, this goes back to what I was saying about how the United States has not been fully engaged in a in a country changing conflict in Afghanistan in well over a decade. We've just been there providing operational support while we draw down and close down bases. And this started in in the end of, you know, Bush's presidency was amped up big time by Obama and then amplified even more by Trump as the drawdown in Afghanistan lasted for 12 years, something like that up until now. I mean, we really started drawing down like 2009, 2010. We started going, the country's going the military effort's going to be all Afghani. The, that was the goal, right? The goal was the military effort will be all Afghani unilaterally without the support of the United States. And we never got there. I think the drawdown was, you know, so quick and the mission changed so rapidly and became so much political about not having, mil, you know, U.S. military killed or, you know, whatever it was, not having civ cast, civilian casualties, collateral damage, things like that. The, 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 the coin counterinsurgency operations, the hearts and mind stuff. It really made a very, very fertile ground for Al Qaeda and Taliban to start restructuring. And the local armies did not do a great job countering them. So the Treasury report, fit and Brown statements calling into question the February 2020 agreement signed by the U.S. and Taliban in Doha, Qatar, which called for the Taliban to cut ties to Al-Qaeda and reduce levels of violence while aiming for a ceasefire peace agreement with the Kabul government. I've said on this show from the very beginning of the peace talks, you can't take those seriously. You cannot take what the Taliban says as far as a ceasefire goes seriously. It doesn't even make sense. They're not even well organized enough to have a ceasefire. They couldn't even put the word out to all their you know, members and supporters. So Army General Austin Miller, commander of U.S. NATO forces in Afghanistan, and Army and Marine General Frank McKenzie, head of U.S. CENTCOM, have said repeatedly that the Taliban is still attacking Afghan security forces and civilians, obviously, and we've, had air, we've been doing airstrikes over there. In reducing the number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan from 4,500 to 2,500 in the waning days of his administration, Donald Trump said he was fulfilling a commitment to end the U.S. forever wars. The Biden administration has now pledged a review of the withdrawal strategy and the February 2020 peace deal with the Taliban. I don't think that it was ever appropriate to give Donald Trump credit for peace talks in Afghanistan, because like I said, I think they were all BS, but it's also not good to amp up troop numbers by a thousand. It's not going to do make any difference. But here it says a council in foreign relations, uh, from Monday, retired army general David Petraeus said, you don't end an endless war simply by taking us troops out of the equation. Here's a quote from Petraeus. We can easily afford, for example, 10,000 troops in Afghanistan, the former commander of U.S. force in Afghanistan said. I'm concerned about the collapse of the Afghan security forces, he said, adding that the Taliban certainly haven't reduced the level of violence. I suspect that will be near the top of Jake Sullivan's list of issues to address. The issue here, you guys, is... The Afghan army has never showed the ability to stand and operate unilaterally. And I don't think that adding American troops back to Afghanistan or any sort of, you know, upping of our support over there is going to change that fact. The Afghanis are not prepared and committed to take back control of their country from Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan for whatever reason. And without that being a big commitment that they're willing to make, I don't see why the United States, except in protection of its own interests, should send more troops over there. I'm willing to hear other ideas about that. But that's what I think. Earl says, "Does the hair dye include eyebrows?" That's a great question. I don't know. Um, we'll wait and see for the new Army Regulation six seventy one to come out. Kilo says, "Kind of make you miss the good old days of the Mujahideen." <laughs> well, the if you look back at the uh, original, you know, efforts of SF forces in Afghanistan two thousand one two thousand two, uh, some of the stories I've heard out of there were kind of insane on how we operated, and it really changed after two thousand three when uh, the US declared victory in Afghanistan. And from that, the drawdown really started in 2003, even though troop numbers went up with different surges and everything, when the operation went to COIN, counterinsurgency, hearts and minds stuff, that was when the drawdown really began um, in, in one sense. So, you know, it's 2021, Joe Biden is president. There's a lot of social efforts going on and I support a lot of them. And then, you get some, and then we got a lot of naysayers, people saying, you know, military's not a place for social experiments, and we don't need to be very sympathetic, and we don't need to be soft on people when, you know, what happened to tough people, where all the tough people at. And then you get a story like this, and it makes you go, well, there goes any idea of us being further ahead than we thought, which is... The Pentagon tried to bury an alarming survey about widespread racism in the ranks, and so we'll see what this means about trying to bury a survey. For years, the Pentagon sat on a 2017 survey showing that nearly a third of black service members who responded had experienced racism, and few troops had faith in the process of officially reporting racism. Only after Reuters reporter Phil Stewart first revealed in December that the Defense Department had buried the survey, results in the bowels of the Pentagon did the military finally release it. Wow, interesting. So here's an... Issue of a a news reporter, a journalist, uncovering something and uh, getting it released to the public. Upon reading a recently released and lengthy 300-page report, it immediately becomes clear why the Pentagon kept the document buried for so long. Overall, about one in five active duty service members, 17%, well, 18% really, indicated experiencing racial ethnic harassment and or discrimination in the 12 months prior to taking the survey. That's according to a copy of the survey. Black and Asian members, 31% and 23%, were more likely to indicate experiencing racial, ethnic, harassment, discrimination than other active duty service members, whereas white members, 12% reported, were less likely. Overall, total minority, 24.5% members, were more likely to indicate experiencing racial, ethnic, harassment, discrimination, whereas white members were less likely. We'll see if this article goes in to describe what examples of that discrimination can look like. It, It probably ranges from feeling like they were discriminated in regards to promotion And other benefits all through, you know, inconsiderate, uh, inflammatory, disrespectful comments around their workspaces. So, moreover, the survey revealed that nearly a third of all service members did not have faith that their complaints about racial harassment and discrimination would be taken seriously if they filed an official report. Do you think that number went up after finding out that this survey got buried by the Pentagon in 2017? It's probably 100% now. In fact, 30% of black respondents and 22% of Asian respondents indicated they felt their chances for getting a promotion would be worse if they reported racial harassment and discrimination, and this doesn't even go into sexual harassment. This is particularly problematic considering non-white military members are more likely to experience racial, ethnic harassment, discrimination, but also have less confidence in in the complaint process. Thus, those who are the most vulnerable may be less likely to seek the help they need. Wow. Of those service members who indicated they had officially reported being the target of racism, only 33% felt their privacy was adequately protected, and just 26% were satisfied with the reporting process overall. So these numbers are abysmal. These numbers are really bad. So- in a lengthy response to the initial writer's story, a defense department spokesman acknowledged the survey's findings that more than 30% of black service members who responded indicated they had experienced racial harassment or discrimination. These problematic behaviors violate a service member's basic human dignity and jeopardize readiness of our military units. This misconduct is intolerable, said Army Major Cesar Santiago. Every incident of harassment or other impermissible discrimination is an affront to, department's values, to the department's values. Finally, Santiago says, we understand the importance of timely transparency and recognize how the release of a 2017 data does not meet the standard of timeliness, Santiago said. The DOD has actions in place to ensure more timely release of racial ethnic data in the future. Interesting. I wonder what that means. And if we will see that, I think I've mentioned this on the show before. My memory, if it serves me correctly, and I'm not always sure it does, you know, a lot of these things are from such a long time ago. I hope I'm always getting my facts right. I usually fact check myself by reaching out to people I knew who worked with me around this time. But I'm pretty sure on one of those surveys, I actually reported I had seen some racial discrimination with some people that we worked with in our shop from some senior people. Uh, But I can't remember if anything ever came of it because you know what happens. So here's what happens for everybody who doesn't understand or isn't in the military, or hasn't been in a long time. You do these surveys, these command climate surveys, at least in the Navy. I'm only going to say I'm sure it happens in the Navy. Every command does these command climate surveys within the command climate survey. There's all these questions. It is anonymous. So your participation is anonymous and you answer these questions. Usually it's totally disagree to totally agree you know, and a, a variation in between of neither agree or disagree, somewhat agree. You guys know the deal. You've done these before. So you fill out these command surveys and then it asks you to make a statement if you want to about some of these questions. So if you answered totally agree, state why. If you answer totally disagree, state why. And then what happens is after those surveys get sent off to, you know, the bean counters, the survey doers, the Scantron machines that the Navy has, they send back a report to the command that's made public to all the command members that says, Eighty percent of the command reported, you know this. Thirty percent reported that. Twenty percent reported this. Now, this Pentagon survey—it doesn't say what this survey was, who initiated it, who participated in it—but it must have been service-wide. Uh, if, if anybody remembers taking a survey in 2017 about kind of command climate, racial equity, equality, discrimination, and harassment, let me know. I don't remember. I don't remember ever hearing about that, either when I was in the Navy or when I had uh, gotten out and working as a civilian. I just don't recall. Certainly does not mean that it didn't happen, but I just don't remember. If you remember, let me know. But it is shocking. I'm, I'm, I am honestly surprised. I know that that sounds maybe like I should have known, but I am a little bit surprised, frankly, to find out that the Pentagon would have that information and then choose not to release it, especially considering the sensitivity of the issue and the fact that it can only serve to improve The situation, I would think, and get this information out to leadership. But hey, I don't know. I'm pretty disappointed to read that, uh, to find that article out. But at least now we have some information and the information was not good. So we have a starting point and hopefully improvements can be made from there for the military. Um, And uh, yeah, so I'm just going to leave it at that for now. So Thank you guys for tuning in. I see some names out there that I haven't seen before or haven't seen in a while. So, Amor, thank you. The first one I could catch. Thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Uh, If you haven't already subscribed to the channel, shared the video, you know, whatever it is, all the ways to support the channel are down in the chat. Scotty says, I do remember this survey and race has been in every survey I have taken since. Um, I think race has been in every survey I've taken ever Um, I don't, I can't say for sure. I think race has been in every survey I've taken ever. I just don't necessarily recall that survey, but all command climate surveys, I do remember them saying things like, have you witnessed discrimination? Have you personally experienced discrimination? Stuff like that. So all those things do sound pretty familiar. Now, Scotty, I'm glad you're in the chat today. We got a story that I think you might find interesting, which is, uh, out of the Marine Corps, Marine Corps out of the Marine Corps, who, if you guys don't know, the military, especially the Navy and the Marine Corps, has taken a large interest in moving back to maritime operations. The Navy and the Marine Corps, with everything happening in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Africa, has said often that they want to get back to being maritime professionals, okay? And this is an interesting story about that. We have a video to watch here in a minute, but the Marine Corps is eyeing long-range robot boats, that can nail targets with kamikaze drones. That is insane. That's like some Ed 209s from RoboCop. You are under arrest, freeze, or we will shoot type thing. Was that a good impression of a robot? Like this video if it was. So let's see what's going on with this. The Marine Corps is on the hunt for a brand new robot surface warship. I can't take myself seriously, that can travel long distances and fire off loitering munitions at various targets. Louisiana-based shipbuilder Metal Shark, coolest name ever, announced on Monday that the Marine Corps Systems Command has selected the company to develop the so-called Long Range Unmanned Surface Vessel, or the LRUSV, which is the worst acronym ever. Uh, You can't even say it in a cool way, so work on that for the service. The El Rusev is an unmanned platform capable of traveling autonomously. So here's what's important about this. This is a boat traveling autonomously, which means it doesn't need to be piloted from a remote console. So this is really, really interesting. The reason I say that that's so interesting is because the less RF emissions that a ship like this has, in the sense that it doesn't have to have a send and receive stream going to and from it, improves its ability to be uh, clandestine. So it can probably move in and out of a lot of waterways more secretively without having to have control. And it also means it's probably less susceptible to being taken over by some kind of jamming or some kind of like hacker gets in there and takes control of the boat. So an unmanned platform capable of traveling autonomously for long distances and launching, launching loitering munitions to address seat and land targets. When it says loitering munitions, I believe they mean the drones. So loitering munitions, also known as kamikaze drones, uh, are best described as bombs that are designed to loiter above a set area, search for targets, and attack once a target is formally identified. This is bonkers. Now, one thing about this is there's something called the kill chain, right? So somebody has to give authority to release a weapon on a target, which means a person will have to be watching this. This ship will not be able to autonomously sail, target, and prosecute targets. No way. So according to Inside Defense, the LRU Rusev will end up looking like an 11 meter autonomous boat that uses the collaborative swarming behaviors developed under a past strategic capabilities office effort called CMOP. And before we go any further into the article here, I have a cool video that we're gonna watch. So let's, uh, let's move over here and watch this video. We're not watching the Navy band anymore, so let me get rid of that. Let me pull up the metal shark video here. And uh, take a second and watch this with me, you guys. This is pretty interesting.
1: Builder Metal Shark has been selected to develop and implement the long-range unmanned surface vessel system for the United States Marine Corps. The LRUSV system will usher in a new era of naval technology while increasing the lethality of U.S. forces with a network of unmanned vessels traveling autonomously for extended ranges and transporting loitering munitions to address targets at sea and on land. This tiered scalable weapon system will provide the ability to accurately track and destroy targets at range throughout the battle space. Wow. While fully autonomous, the vessels may be optionally manned, and they will carry multiple payloads, which they will be capable of autonomously launching and retrieving. Metal Shark has enlisted wow. autonomous technology developer Spatial Integrated Systems, recently acquired by Huntington Ingalls Industries, so to they. provide the autonomy solution for the LRUSV system. In addition to the autonomous LRUSV, Metal Shark will also produce manned support vessels for the LRUSV system, utilizing its 40 Defiant Military Patrol Craft Platform, which the builder is currently producing to create the U.S. Navy's new 40 PB Patrol Boat Fleet. The LRUSV program is the latest success for METALSHARK's Shark Tech Autonomous Vessels Division, a wholly owned subsidiary focused on the advancement of unmanned vessel technology. In September, it was announced that the United States Coast Guard had selected a 29-foot Shark Tech autonomous test vessel equipped with autonomy by Boston-based technology developer Sea Machines for evaluation by the Coast Guard Research and Development Center. Metal Shark's Shark Tech division has also produced and delivered autonomous vessels equipped with autonomy solutions from L3Harris, previously ASV Global. For more information on the LRUSV system, visit metalsharkboats.com.
0: Of course, L3 has a hand in this. Why wouldn't they? Um, Major, major military contracting company. So this is pretty interesting. Like, I think that's pretty cool. Like, a ship that can go out, unmanned, launch munitions, recover these drones too, it sounds like, and then stay and then return to, like, a a man boat. But the fact that they have an accompanied man boat kind of defeats the purpose. Uh, What I was thinking was these could be, like, on an aircraft carrier or on a destroyer and they could, de- they could deploy off the out the back of the ship or something like that and then go take on some pirates or something like that. Maybe patrol ahead and get an, a, a visual on a beach or something along those lines. Pretty interesting. Uh, so this tiered scalable weapon system will provide the ability to accurately track and destroy targets at range throughout the battle space. That's pretty cool. I wonder if you could swarm these and have like a fleet of these out and they're all working together. And maybe they could also, I'm assuming they also could, relay for each other. So you could have like communications extended by each one of these that you have out there. I'm guessing that's probably a thing that they have. I would have to guess. So that's pretty cool. It's, it's, you know, of course, you know, you've got L3 Harris in there. They did a name change. I didn't actually know that. So they're making a ton of money. So somebody just made a ton of money, but I think things that improve the Marine Corps and the Navy getting back out into owning the sea, you know, sea superiority, sea power superiority and dominance and freedom of movement through waterways, which is really the mission of the Navy. Uh, anything that improves that I'm down for. So Rachel, thank you for your support and telling people to like the stream. Justin says, it's like an airspace mine. It's definitely, it's like a, it's like a air, it's like an airspace Lloyd. It could probably attack anything. It's probably air to ground. Justin, I would say that those things are probably air to ground. Kilo says Russia's latest sub as 12-foot diameter nuclear-powered nuclear-triggered torpedo that can stay out by itself for months. Nice. Scotty recommended this book to me yesterday called The Kill Chain. I already downloaded it on Audible. I'm going to start listening today. So if you guys get a chance, check out The Kill Chain. I'll do a review of it on the show. Armor says, Amor says, Could you imagine a submersible variant of this device? Some uh, Submarine warfare just got a lot more stressful. Uh, yeah, the loitering drones are probably air-to-ground, Justin. I think that's what they are. The loitering dr- drones, once they launch, probably attack other ground targets. So who knows what submarines are doing? Submarines are already pretty scary. Um, okay. Time's flying by. we got two stories to cover today. Still two big ones. One is, uh, you know, I'm going to take a different approach to this than what you guys are probably used to. We all know Audi Murphy, right? Audi Murphy, the most decorated soldier in world war II, medal of honor legend, right? He's just a legend. And that's how we remember him. And he went on to become a movie star and a major celebrity and advocate for the military and just somebody that the military idolizes, right? But was it all good? Was it all good for Audi Murphy after what he did, which we're going to go over his citation. So in case anybody doesn't know the story of Audi Murphy and what he won his award for, but what about this stuff post-war, right? We're going to talk about that a little bit. So today or yesterday celebrated the 76th anniversary of Audi Murphy, earning his Medal of Honor with nothing but a burning tank destroyer's 50 cal and insane bravery. So January 26th, 1945, and the story of Audi Murphy is born. So the most decorated U.S. service member of World War II earned his legacy in a fiery fashion. Audi Murphy, this uh, part of the article is from, or this article is from Task and Purpose. Audi Murphy, then a second lieutenant commanding of Company B in 1st Battalion, 15th Infantry, 3rd Infantry Division, found himself surrounded by six German tanks, which, by the way, were famous for being just death machines. German tanks were death machines. And wave after wave of enemy infantry while fighting in Holtzsville, France. Rather than treat with his men, Murphy made a gutsy decision. He ordered his soldiers to withdraw to the cover of a nearby forest and set up their artillery while he remained at his forward command post to direct their fire. Things quickly took a turn for the worse. A nearby Allied tank destroyer burst into flames following a direct hit from an enemy tank, its crew fleeing to the woods and leaving Murphy alone. But Murphy didn't shrink from an oncoming onslaught of German armor. Instead, he mounted the burning tank destroyer and took on wave after wave of German infantry with nothing more than the 50 cal and superhuman determination, it says. So here is the Medal of Honor citation for Audi Murphy. With the enemy tanks abreast of his position, 2nd Lieutenant Murphy climbed on the burning tank destroyer, which was in danger of blowing up at any moment, and employed its 50 cal machine gun against the enemy. He was alone and exposed to German fire from three sides, but his deadly fire killed dozens of Germans and caused their infantry attack to waver. The enemy tanks, losing infantry support, began to fall back. For an hour, the Germans tried every available weapon to eliminate 2nd Lieutenant Murphy, but he continued to hold his position and wiped out a squad, which was trying to creep up unnoticed on his right flank. Germans reached as close as 10 yards only to be mowed down by his fire. He received a leg wound, but ignored it and continued the single-handed fight until his ammunition was exhausted. He then made his way to his company, refused medical attention, and organized the company in a counterattack, which forced the Germans to withdraw. His directing of artillery fire wiped out many of the enemy he killed or wounded about 50 50 second lieutenant this is back to task and purpose second lieutenant murphy's indomitable courage and his refusal to give an inch of ground saved his company from possible encirclement and destruction and enabled it to hold the woods which had been the enemy's objective so audi murphy then goes down in military history as being this you know epic badass epic badass of um, the war, the World War Two uh, era, and goes on to become, you know, a celebrity effectively. So Kilo says, uh, "Yep, third ID." And Kilo says, "Got to respect the 50 cal, and the 50 cal is still the most powerful gun that uh, we're equipped with on the battlefield today. I think the most powerful, powerful crew served weapon that we have that people uh, have on their trucks. So, uh, you know, the question is." that I have when I hear about this is are we doing the, a good job, you know, idolizing warriors like Addy Murphy as just being like these rock hard, unaffected badasses who come back and they're like just, you know, calm and cool and, you know, he's the man and there's no consequences for this type of thing. Um, or should we kind of talk about this post-combat life that he had where he suffered major, major post-traumatic stress. He tried to advocate for veterans. And if you guys don't know, Adie Murphy eventually died in a plane crash. He died in a plane crash in the 70s, very unceremoniously. Um, I wanted to take this time to talk about why I think and why it's important to me to talk about World War II veterans and the fact that they dealt with, you know, what they called at the time, shell shock uh, for their whole life post-World War II. They weren't just fine after coming home from Europe and the Pacific they dealt with these issues just like veterans of today do and there's really no difference in how affected they were. But they didn't have the resources that we have today to deal with it and we never really talk about that as far as that generation goes. So I've just got, you know, Wikipedia pulled up here and something I'm going to talk about Audi Murphy's deal um, dealing with PTSD. So it says, since his military service, Murphy had been plagued with insomnia and bouts of depression. Insomnia being a major contributing factor to a lot of veteran suicides. A lot of veteran suicides come after days of sleeplessness. And I hear this again and again and again from people. In the days leading up to suicide or suicide attempts, veterans talk about not sleeping for days, trying to take sleep medication, still not being able to sleep, nightmares, all these things that lead up to suicide and suicide attempts. He slept with a loaded pistol under his pillow, his wife said. A post-service medical examination on June 17, 1947 Revealed symptoms of headaches, vomiting, and nightmares about the war. Nightmares. Like, this stuff stays with you forever. His medical records indicated he took sleeping pills to help prevent nightmares. During the mid-60s, he recognized his dependence on Placidil and locked himself alone in a hotel room for a week to successfully break the addiction. To me, that's as courageous as going to war, is to cold turkey break an addiction like that and have to deal with that on your own. We thought, we look at, like... You know, somebody emailed me on Instagram after I talked about people being addicted to pain meds in the military. Somebody saw that segment and emailed me saying that they're an advocate for, you know, pain management without medications. And hopefully I'll get them on the show soon and talk about that. Post-traumatic stress levels exasperated his innate moodiness and surfaced in episodes that friends and professional colleagues found alarming. So you would have these episodes of uh, post-traumatic stress, panic attacks, flashbacks that his friends and family would see. His first wife, Dixie Wanda Hendricks, claimed he once held her at gunpoint. Terrifying. It's terrifying. She witnessed her husband being guilt-ridden and tearful over newsreel footage of German war orphans. So he dealt with guilt of his part in the slaying of Germans, and I'm sure to death of many German civilians. Murphy briefly found a creative stress outlet in writing poetry after his army discharge. His poem, The Crosses Grow on Anzio, appeared in his book To Helen Back, but was attributed to the fictitious character Kerrigan. If you guys want me to check out The crosses Growing Anzio on this show, let me know in the comments. To draw attention to the problems of returning Korean War and Vietnam War veterans, Murphy spoke out candidly about his own problems with PTSD. It was known during Murphy's lifetime as battle fatigue and shell shock. They would just say, oh, look at him, he's shell shocked. Terminology that dated back to World War I. So that was from the trench warfare in World War I. They would describe people as shell shocked. He called on the government to give increased consideration and study to the emotional impact of combat experiences and to extend healthcare benefits to war veterans. As a result of legislation introduced by U.S. Congressman Olin Teague five months after Murphy's death in 1971, the Audi L. Murphy Memorial VA Hospital in San Antonio, now a part of the South Texas Veterans Healthcare System, was dedicated in 1973, but only after his untimely death in 1971. Like I said, Audie Murphy went on post-war to star in a bunch of films. He was married, he had children, and he had a gambling problem and lots of other problems that he dealt with. And all we talk about with Audie Murphy is his badass war legacy, which is notable and courageous, and he should be honored for it. But I think that it's important that, you know, the world knows that even a guy like Audie Murphy came home and dealt with major stress and anxiety and depression issues, insomnia, addiction, after coming back from the war. I really don't think we give enough you know, credit to that as far as the World War II generation goes. These men and women came back from war for for longer, more harrowing deployments than, you know, modern veterans could ever imagine. And they went right back to work rebuilding the country. And, you know, becoming major members of a society. We covered that in the obituaries. A lot of those are World War II veterans. So I just think it's important to talk about. Let me know if, you know, and we'll do that, Justin, we'll do that poem on tomorrow's show. How about that? Tomorrow we'll do the, the, uh, Anzio poem, um, The Halls of Anzio. I already don't remember what it was called. But we'll do it tomorrow on tomorrow's show. So, tune in for that. Um, now, now, uh, there's one more thing to cover today. I think we have just enough time to do it. Is this crazy, I mean, insane story that I stumbled across today. It actually is, a, it's not breaking as of today. It's actually been around for a little while. But um, it is... Uh, I mean, I, let's just get into it. Let's just get into it. Cause it's kind of bananas. And, uh, here we go. So the Navy's UFO patent documents talk of space time modification weapon and detail experimental testing. Now we know the Navy's been up to some weird stuff. You can go back and look at the Philadelphia experiment as some weird stuff that Navy did. And this is, uh, This is kind of insane. So a lot of this is going to be over my head. So I'm going to kind of hit the wave tops here and kind of give you guys an idea. Let me start with this. Let me start with this, which is a brief summary of what they think they were trying to do here. Let me find it in the article. So the potential uses for this invention, right? Imagine our Navy's ships, submarines, aircraft, and Marine Corps armored ground vehicles being powered with safe, reliable, virtually limitless fusion energy. Imagine the power of the sun confined in a compact, relatively small space. With the plasma compression fusion device, this figment of imagination becomes a tangible reality. Are you guys, can you guys believe this? The present invention can produce power to the gigawatt to terawatt range and higher with input power in the kilowatt to megawatt range and possibly lead to ignition plasma burn. Under uniquely defined conditions, the plasma compression fusion device can lead to development of a space-time modification weapon, a weapon that can make the hydrogen bomb seem more like a firecracker in comparison. I don't want that. Extremely high energy levels can be achieved with this invention. Under pulsed ultra-high current, ultra-high magnetic flux density conditions, Z-pinch, and a fusion twist, There's some kind of yield, some math stuff in here. Is there the potential for commercial use? In giant bold letters, it says yes. The design of a thermonuclear fusion reactor, safe, reliable, limitless energy for commercial electricity generation. The design of fusion-driven aircraft jet engines. The design of fusion-induced intergalactic space drives. This thing literally says intergalactic space drives. Like, am I reading this from Battlestar Galactica? What is this? What is this? So it says here, in our continuing investigation into the bizarre, inter, and this is from the drive.com, and I've, I've double-checked this in multiple sources. This information all seems to check out. The Bizarre Inventions of Dr. Salvatore Caesar Pais. Pies Pays? Here you go. If you tuned in to watch me, mess up a name, and there it is. An enigmatic aerospace engineer who works for the U.S. Navy. The War Zone has obtained a wide range of documents detailing experiments that the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division, NOCAD, conducted to test the core concepts and technologies underlying his seamlessly out-of-this-world UFO patents. These same patents were vouched for by the head of the Navy's aerospace research enterprise, who cited Chinese advances in similar technologies as one of the reasons why the Navy was filing them. The Warzone's most recent report on strange circumstances surrounding these patents underlined that there were indeed some type of physical experiments conducted related to them, even if very limited. Now, new Freedom of Information Act releases provide unprecedented insights, not just into how seriously the Navy took Dr. Pais' work, but also exactly how elements of it were actually tested at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is like nothing. It's a negligent amount of money compared to the military and where the space and where the program may have ended up. I just add words sometimes. I just add words that aren't even there sometimes. The materials even include mentions of a space-time modification weapon, a weapon that can make the hydrogen bomb seem more like a firecracker. That's, you know, let me pause here for a second, address the comments, and and just say something. You guys have heard me say this on a show before. It's one of the most powerful quotes I've ever heard, and it always stays with me, and it's important that I repeat it now. It's an Albert Einstein quote. It said, he said... I do not know with which weapons World War III will be fought with, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. That quote, if you don't understand, what he's saying is with the development of weapons beyond nuclear, nuclear and beyond, another world war would prove so destructive that there would be no technology left. There would be nothing left. We would just fight, the remaining people would have nothing to fight with but sticks and stones. So heed the warnings, Heed the warnings from smarter people than myself, from smarter people than anybody watching this show, about the power, the destructive power, and the horror of these types of super weapons. And so, if they're making the if they're putting the power of the sun into nuclear fusion weapons, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Kilo says, "Don't know a fusion vehicle may not like it hit by an AT missile." I believe that, uh, but I assume these things would be so would be so protected from some kind of thermal runaway type situation. I don't even know if that's what you would call that, that maybe you wouldn't have to worry about it. Justin says, is this Navy messing with the Air Force's Space Force? Uh, Well, somebody's got to get the intergalactic drives going. Somebody had to take the next step. If Space Force isn't going to do it, might as well be the Navy. The Navy leads the way. The Navy always leads the way. Go Navy. So here in the article, it says, um, I've got this other article pulled up. So basically, this article is so technically complex that if I even try to read it to you guys, it's not going to make any sense. But just understand that, and there's charts in here about how these things work. Just try to understand this is a real thing that they're trying to create and they're throwing around words like intergalactic drive. They're throwing around words like intergalactic drive for the Navy. Okay. Let's just think about that for a second. So, if you look at this next article I have up on my screen, or I'll try to describe it to you. There's this circular circular reactor type situation going on here. And the guy says, the headline of this article from Popular Mechanics, so Popular Mechanics, if you think that's a little bit more legitimate, the guy behind the Navy's wild UFO patent speaks. So these unusual patents filed on behalf of the Navy as the excuse me, the scientist in charge of it has broken his silence and finally spoken to the media. Salvatore Caesar Pice responded to emails to the war zone, but his answers bring us no closer to how the technology behind the patents, which involve fusion power and other exotic tech came about. So Dr. Pice, formerly an aerospace engineer with uh, uh, Naval Air Systems Command, Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division, now a member of the Navy Strategic Systems Programs, recently achieved notoriety with the publication of patents involving compact fusion reactor energy. Truly wild stuff that stretches the limits of science and a hybrid aerospace underwater aircraft. So the two technologies combined could theoretically create a UFO-like aircraft similar to the ones seen by U.S. Navy pilots in 2004 and 2014 to 15. Was it us? Was this us? Although highly unusual, the Naval Air Systems Chief Technology Officer, James Sheeby, assured the U.S. Patent Technology Office that the technology behind them was indeed real, indeed real, and that some aspects were already undergoing testing. What? This is one of the craziest stories we've covered on the show. Pice recently published a paper in Triple E Transactions on Plasma Science titled The Plasma Compression Fusion Device Enabling Nuclear Fusion Ignition. The device is essentially a fusion reactor, the holy grail of energy research. Fusion reactors promise cheap, limitless energy without complications of nuclear power, particularly nuclear meltdowns and the generation of nuclear waste. Fusion is obviously the, you know, it's like how the hydrogen bomb came to be. It is one of the highest resulting energies that mankind has ever created out of a very small amount of initial energy. But the process of getting those, as far as I understand fusion energy, it's the process of getting fusion started that requires so much power and complexity and sensitivity that that's why it hasn't been feasible before. They say it took an atom bomb to ignite a hydrogen bomb, right? So think about that. They say it took an atom bomb to ignite a hydrogen bomb. So it takes an insane amount of, I don't know where we are today, 70 years later, but it takes a a lot of energy to get fusion going. So most major countries as well as major corporations like Lockheed Martin are working on their own fusion power projects, but the necessary breakthrough to make the tech operational is still thought to be decades away. Goes in to talk a little bit more about how fusion could work. It says, could Pies's work be an effort by the Navy to replicate technology seen by U.S. Navy Super Hornet pilots, or is it entirely different and separate from those UFO sightings? Even more bizarrely, could the UFOs represent real-world tests of technology that a Navy representative assured USPTO was taking place? We're no closer to finding out the truth, but at least we now know Pies answers his emails. (laughs) Yeah, I guess if this guy can, you know, create nuclear fusion weapons, he can probably answer an email every once in a while. So that is insane. I'm looking at the wrong camera. So that is insane. Uh, I hope you guys understand why this is important to cover. They literally said this could make a hydrogen bomb look like a firecracker. That would probably destroy the whole world with one of those. So we're going to keep an eye on this story. Maybe I'll find out more information if you guys are interested and we can talk more about on tomorrow's episode, but we're going to be wrapping today's up. So Scotty says, let me catch him on the chat here really quick. Scotty says there's ice on the moon. That means that the moon can be used as a space refueling station. That's mind-blowing to, I mean, what? Justin says, I'm with you, Scotty. We should mine space for water, metal, other resources, and keep Earth our home. Fusion is less than fission, right? Fusion creates more energy than fusion, I believe. Fusion is the combination, fission is the separation. So of an atom. So fusion would be combining two atoms. I think that's the most destructive force that we have ever created. Correct me if I'm wrong in the chat. Amor says, Navy must be aiming for stars with their ships now instead of the deep blue. You know, if you play Halo, if you watch Star Trek, uh the the formation of space fleets were very navy in their structure, so maybe. Kilo says, "I know DARPA has been working on superconductors and magnetic propulsion for decades." Did the railgun come out of DARPA? Is the railgun a DARPA initiative? Uh now they're using magnets for um to launch all kinds of things, right? They're using magnetic Trains, magnetic aircraft carrier launchers, magnetic rail guns. So, magnets are definitely a big part of the future of tech, I believe. Amor says, Art imitates life, and life imitates art seems to fit too well. Uh, it's true. You know, science fiction always becomes science fact. That seems to be something that we've learned. I don't think there's uh, any reason to pretend like that's not a thing. Science fiction always becomes science fact. So, Nikki says, I have a good video coming out tomorrow. Nikki's just trying to steal my viewers. Uh, so, you know Nikki's bombing my chat, so let show Nikki some love. Nikki's the man. Uh, always watch Nikki's videos; they're great. Rachel says naval tech has always been for advanced, far uh, advanced than what we can imagine. That's true. The Navy's always been a a leader in technology and a leader in um, uh, the formation of things like aircraft carriers, right? For example, the Navy invented aircraft carriers. That's a major technological initiative, uh, and other countries have never even compared. Other countries' aircraft carriers have never even come close to the navies. So we lead the way on that. Thank you, Nikki, for the support. Thanks for tuning in. We are about to sign out. Today's episode was awesome. I appreciate you guys being here. As always, links in the description down below of how you can support the channel. You can become a patron. A patron, you can uh, donate. You can like and share this video. That's what I really want is for you guys to share the content, share the video, invite people to the chat get the chats popping. They're going great. I love having you guys here every day. We've got one more show tomorrow. I'll be reading, I'll be uh, talking about that poem from Audie Murphy about Anzio. Anzio referenced in the movie, The Liberator as the most violent and horrible experience of uh, the, the life of the soldiers and featured in that movie. And um, so I guess with that being said, Thank you guys for tuning in to the Scuttlebutt Show. We're growing. The show's blowing up right now. We're getting up to 820 subscribers on YouTube, over 800 people on Instagram. People are hitting me up on Facebook. I got an interesting Facebook post today from somebody who want to talk about UFOs, as a matter of fact. We'll see if anything develops out of that. Kilo says, Air Force is up there on the advancement in flight to it. Yes, that is true. And I, I'm interested to see if now we come to find out that those tic-tac UFOs that the Navy spotted back in the day were actually just us testing our own gear that would be bonkers. That would be totally bonkers. So with that being said, I appreciate you guys being here. I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. I am out for now.